Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. I'm coming to you live from the West Coast, where I just took part in some tough and interesting debates about Trump's first hundred days and the future of American education. I even had some one-on-one time with our new Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. I'll get to that in a minute. But first, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Brian Kennedy, to help us translate Trump and sort out the big week in Washington. Brian Kennedy is the president of the American Strategy Group. And each week, the American Strategy Group sponsors these important conversations on politics and national security. I'm proud to say that I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group as well. To learn more, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Welcome, Brian. Great to be with you, Bill, as always. Brian, uh, Donald Trump, the administration, uh, we're in the second 100 days now, getting a fair amount of criticism from conservatives. National Review was pretty tough on him in regard to the uh, budget uh, and the continuing resolution. Uh, Rush Limbaugh was pretty tough on him. Uh, is it fair for Rush and National Review and other conservatives to criticize the budget deal, the continuing resolution? Well, at one level, absolutely. I mean, what is the uh, point of winning an election if once you have a majority and the presidency, you're not willing to do everything it takes under the Constitution to carry out all the promises you made to the American people? Rush, who's talking to the American people every day, much like you, uh, Rush just hears from people. Why well, are I we wish, do- I wish. Well, of course, yeah. yes, yes. We'll, we'll get that audience. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, right. absolutely, okay. absolutely. <laughs> um, Rush just wonders... You know, listening to the American people, why aren't we doing more and faster? We have this wonderful majority. We seem to be in agreement about the main things, and yet we're not getting uh, simple things done. He was on with the vice president yesterday, and the vice president was doing his best to defend the legislative process. But frankly, you really could repeal Obamacare, get a lot of these budget things right. If we're going to shut the government down in September, you might as well do it now and have the American people quit living under, for example, Obamacare and some of its awful provisions. Republicans always get blamed for shutting the government down. Is this the right time for uh, Donald Trump to have to absorb that, given everything else he's trying to do? I mean, I think that's the argument, isn't it? That this is a holdover Obama budget, that in September they get to do their own anew. uh, And uh, on that one, uh, they've indicated, uh, it seems to me, they've indicated willingness, body language to the effect of, we'll shut it down if we have to, but it'll be on our terms, not on Barack Obama's budget terms. Yeah, no, I do do think that's fair, too. The Republicans in Congress, though, should be really the ones getting the blame, not so much Trump, I think. I mean, what, what have they been doing all these years, if not planning for this moment and being ready to put up a fight? And... Limbaugh made the very good point that we should just push everything to reconciliation and do it with 51 votes. What about the current agenda can we not get done here that needs to get done? And so, yes, you don't really want to shut the government down, but there's always going to be resistance. You might as well start making the fight now and, and get it over with. But look, I think the president still, is still in so many ways reestablishing himself politically yeah i in, agree with that in washington and he hasn't completely he hasn't barely built a government that is capable of supporting him on the one level and he doesn't have political allies yet in congress and paul ryan is trying to help get the congress to act in concert but that's not an easy thing to do people need to understand that the president is still new at this 
Uh, I think he's a quick learner. I think he's going to see these mistakes, but the American people don't uh, don't understand these things very often. You, you who have been in Washington so many years see all that, but hard to expect the American people to. There's a certain dissonance and disconnect, uh, it seems to me. I just, just one more question on this to you, Brian Kennedy. It's clear you don't have Barack Obama anymore. You've got uh, Donald Trump. That much is different, very, very different. You couldn't have more different people. But uh, some things still feel the same, and I think that's what conservatives are saying. The complaint around this town is when the Democrats are in charge, it goes a certain direction. When the Republicans are in charge, it goes the Democrats' direction. It's not sufficiently different. So the question, I guess, is uh, do we wait till September uh, or uh, do we uh, uh, change things now? I would say, and I'll talk about this a little bit on my own later on, that things are pretty different. Uh, not everything can be done uh, in 100 days or 200 days. But uh, I do understand that the complaint, um, patience is not uh, a virtue. I do agree with you 100% that uh, the Congress, readiness is all, says Shakespeare, and they aren't ready on, uh, on this. Of course, Paul Ryan, as you know, is a good friend of mine. He is herding cats. I mean, this is a, this is a bunch who wants to be in charge. They want to reassert their authority, uh, and uh, they're all over the map uh, philosophically. Absolutely. But on the other hand, when it comes to building the border wall, why aren't we doing it now? If we can actually get even a down payment, the president should be on our southern border with a shovel and a group yeah. of engineers starting this wall. If we're serious about the wall, let's get it started. Let's find other money somewhere, somehow to get that done. So, I mean, the president has a lot of opportunities. And look, these next hundred days, I think he's going to be finding the money for the border wall, making whatever deals he has to and making sure that all the promises he made during the campaign are carried through. And we're all taking the patient's temperature every 10 minutes, expecting yeah. this is going to get done. And I have every confidence that big fights are going to occur and that the president will be in the middle of those fights. He'll see the urgency and he'll press. Good. Contra to what I said earlier, one thing that people are saying um, uh, Trump is not sufficiently being Trump-like is in his uh, treatment of some of the uh, foreign policy leaders or despots around the world. You know, uh, Trump is supposed to be this tough guy, this macho guy, but people are saying, well, he's going soft, going soft on um, President Sisi of uh, Egypt, on uh, Putin, he's been soft, Kim Jong-un from North Korea, you know, it would be an honor to meet with him, he said. Uh, President Duterte, I think I'm saying that correctly, of the Philippines, um, I, what is going on here? Is he getting softer? Is this something else? No, I just think that's that's Trump's style. He's a tough guy, but he often, I think, speaks in ways that try to try to change the environment, soften things up. Kim Jong Un is a smart cookie. He said, you know, you know, the president probably thinks he's a pretty dangerous guy and a pretty crafty guy, and so let's be nice to him and let's actually. Uh, see whether we can do business with them. He's met with President Sisi. President Sisi is an ally. He's trying to do good over there. Of course, he's going to talk to allies a certain way, and he's going to talk to enemies a certain way. He has a certain respect, I think, for any world leader. Anybody who's able to become head of their country is going to earn his respect. And I think Trump, Trump's own personal style is really just to, to uh, reach out and to 
win over these people if possible. They right. know the Amer America is a strong country and that they need America. And so the president is simply um, walking softly and carrying a big stick. I would be great. I mean, I you know, you, you go through this litany of people, uh, Putin, Kim Jong-un, uh, Duterte, Philippines. Uh, I'd rather have uh, Trump meet with them than Barack Obama. I mean, you know, he's a tough dealer. Absolutely. He's a tough negotiator. Absolutely. Look, Neil, and these people need us. And they need us either defending the world order or engaged in trade and commerce. They need to be nice to the United States. And good Lord, Donald Trump is not going to compromise a single principle he has in dealing with these folks. But yeah. the media loves to seize on any notion that he's somehow compromising with bad guys. That's just, that's ridiculous. Well, Kim Jong-un is not going to be part of the world order. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident of that. Before there's, I don't, I don't know that there's a world order he'd join. No. Be eligible for. Go ahead. No, no, but apparently he's a huge fan of Baywatch. And the new, so there's, and, <laughs> and the new Baywatch movie's coming out. If, I didn't if, say he wasn't male. If he was invited to the Baywatch premiere, I bet you we can make a deal here. And Trump and Trump could get that done. Okay, all right. You just you totally threw me off track. Good for you. So you watch reruns, or is it still on? I wouldn't know. Probably on videotape. Okay, but the new one's coming on out. Video on the rock, eight track, the rock. maybe. All right, all right, uh, all right. So, so sum it up. You were an early Trump supporter. You were at the convention. You were a surrogate, right, for for Donald Trump. You were early on. You and I talked about this. You said to me, "Come on, you got to be for this guy. He's going to get the nomination." You're uh, talking to me about this, had a big influence on me. So now you're talking to him. Next 100 days, next 150, next 200 days. What's the advice? Translate, uh, translate Trump for us the next 200 days. Well, I've never, uh, I don't expect to talk to him anytime soon. But uh, I think what I would say is go out among the American people again and go to the border and build that wall and listen to the stories they have about Obamacare and why it needs to be repealed now. Help them tell that story to the American people. He promised things like, you know, for instance, one of, one of the things that I care about, the most missile defense. We wouldn't, North Korea would not even be in the news if we had a national missile defense today. We have the money today to get that right. He should be going to those places in the country where missile defense is built, whether it's Alabama or California or Alaska. He should actually go to those places and he should show the American people all the good he could get done. He could get that done in the next, these next hundred days. I expect he's going to do much of those kind of things. And what we know is Donald Trump can talk to the American people. The more he does that, the more effective his administration will be. Your favorite thing that he's done, large or small, in the first hundred days, top of your head? Well, not going to that... Uh, that Washington dinner with the <laughs> correspondence right. was was a real a real shot at the credibility of the media. They think they run the country. The media does, and he didn't show the the adequate respect. And I think that's a great thing. Look, the, the mere fact that he hasn't backed down on any of his major issues, yeah. he may not have got them done yet, but that doesn't mean he's not fighting for them. And in that regard, I think Donald Trump is still holds out the promise that he could be the most effective president that we could have hoped for right now because he's not wed to all the common, you know, pieties when it comes to Washington, D.C. He's Great. willing to fight. Great. How many people are willing to fight if only Congress 
would be willing to fight like he did. Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. Thanks again for joining us. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, uh, great conversation with Brian Kennedy. Always, always interesting. Very interesting mind. Very interesting guy. I am on the West Coast. I went to the Milken Global Conference uh, in um, Beverly Hills. Masters of the Universe were there, Chris, uh, with Chris Beach here talking. And, um, you know, venture fund guys and, you know, everybody had a name tag that said the such and such fund or so-and-so and sons and partners, except me. I had former, <laughs> former this, former that, former everything. But uh, it was very interesting. I was on three panels, and I think I'm the only person uh, who was on three panels with all those distinguished people. They needed a utility hitter, you know, designated hitter, utility infielder, outfielder. So I spoke on the first 100 days and uh, defended the president. Um, and uh, the other panelists were, well, some defended him, some didn't. The argument was that he didn't have a coherent foreign policy, that is, some theoretical superstructure. And I said, well, right, uh, it's in formation, except it is, there is a, a heading called America First, which he takes very seriously, and uh, it's evolving. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't write books. He's not von Clausewitz, you know. He's, <laughs> he's, he's going to, you know, do it a lot on the fly. But uh, so far, so good. I think we're flexing some muscle. We're showing... Uh, some strength. Uh, domestically, people pointed out things he wasn't able to get done. Right. But uh, things he has done. I was particularly pleased with his outreach to the business community. And a lot of the business community there, even people didn't like Trump, said this is good. It's been good for the markets. It's going to be good for the economy. Then uh, there was uh, pa- two panels on education. I sat with Jeb Bush and Betsy DeVos uh, and Lowell Milken. And we talked about the future of education. Uh, I reminded them of a uh, of that uh, report that I told this audience about a week or so ago about uh, students starting high school who are hyphenated Americans. Uh, when they start high school, the majority identify themselves as Americans, sometimes hyphenated, sometimes not. And when they finish high school in America, a majority do not identify themselves as American. Um, this made some people's uh, jaws drop, and um, it was uh, that was the desired effect. Also talked about uh, the sorry performance of American education, and uh, there wasn't much uh, dissent uh, dissent from that. And we talked about higher ed and technology, and um, very interesting discussion. Everybody believes that technology will change higher ed. I think it's going to destroy large uh, parts of higher ed. I think some places are going to disappear. Uh, and um, I talked about uh, Udacity uh, and Coursera, some of these other companies which have been in the forefront in terms of the use of the technology. And again, there was a good, vigorous discussion. Uh, lots of uh, interesting people to talk to. One of the most interesting people I found to talk to off point here was Jim Gray. Really? Uh, he's a sports guy. Yeah. You know, and uh, he was very complimentary of me, and we talked about maybe doing something together sometime. We'll have him on the show. Nice. That'd we'll be bring, great. We'll bring him back on the podcast. So that was... Uh, that was Bill goes to uh, Los Angeles. <laughs> Bill goes to Hollywood. Bill goes to almost Hollywood. Almost yeah, Hollywood. pretty close. Yeah, yeah. We, we uh, my my son was with me. My older son and we. Uh, we he go, looks like he belongs in Hollywood. He does look like he belongs to Hollywood, and I look like his aging security guy. <laughs> but uh, we went. We walked past Spago and uh, oh. you know and the Beverly Wilshire and all that, and that was interesting. So so now there, I know I have a couple of questions for you because I know when you get on these panels. Uh, you're not one to shy away from a little fight. 
Right. And I heard you got into a little a little uh, war of words with the governor of Montana on some education. Oh, things. yeah. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. He was also on this panel with Jeb Bush and uh, Lowell Milken and, and, uh, and I. And, uh, and me. Excuse me. With me. Yeah. Secretary of Education. <laughs> object of a preposition. Uh, okay. And... Uh, he said, we talked about devolving uh, power from Washington to the states, and he, good Westerner, said, I'm all for that. Give it back to us. We don't think you people in Washington are smarter than we are. I said, I know we're not, but you know, take that from someone who's not very smart by definition, huh? Anyway, you see the point. That's a philosopher's point. Sorry, guys. Anyway, um, he said, you know, we, we should uh, have the authority to decide what to teach and uh, how many people in the classroom and... You know, what's taught and, uh, you know, what the hours are and so on and so on. I said, well, how do you feel about um, Washington telling you what uh, uh, what uh, bathrooms to put in place for people who decide to change their gender on the spur of the moment? The dispute that's obviously been around here. He said, oh, that's a civil right. That's a, that's a civil right. So he is the Democrat. Uh, right. He's a good guy and he's from the great country out there in Montana. But uh, he's a Democrat. He said, well, that's a fundamental civil right. I said, I had missed that in the Constitution. But uh, we got right. It was just a little. It was polite. But, boy, I, they do walk the party line. I'll give them that. They do. Uh, and the other thing I'm always curious about, I know at some of these fancy conferences, people won't clap really or they'll kind of be reserved you know, during the speech. But then they'll come up to you afterwards and say, oh, Dr. Bennett, I really liked what you said about this. Did anything interesting like that Yeah, happen? yeah. I was throwing some zingers out there, uh, like what I just said, and got no audience reaction, you know, no applause. But afterwards, people come say, ah, that was good. That was great. Who's, who isn't in the Bible? Is that Nicodemus who comes to, comes to Jesus late? And- right. He says, you got to, you got to. At night. Yeah, late at night. You got to walk it like you talk it, right? Exactly. Let let people see your faith. Anyway, that's okay. These are business guys. They're very conflict averse. They don't like controversy. I live on it. (laughs) Now, one other thing. um, I was watching some of your first 100 days debate, and a big topic there was uh, foreign policy. And they were talking about, you know, Trump inviting the president of the Philippines. Well, just so happens that you have been tied in a recent Washington Post op-ed to the policies, the drug policies of the president of the Philippines. Yeah, uh, Donald Trump said that he'd, uh, you know, be honored to meet. I don't know if he used the word honor, but he said he'd be happy to meet with Duterte. I think he just, yeah, invited Duterte, him. Invited him, and he's coming to the U.S. And this guy is uh, tough. He's use a, a yeah. wild word on drug dealers. Even suspected drug dealers may go outside the law. Probably has, uh, but uh, the uh, place is safer, and there's certainly a lot fewer drugs going on. Um, I have no brief for somebody who is the president of the country and uses extra legal means. I'm not going to defend that. But um, but his heart may be in the right place, uh, or his sentiments may be in the right place. The article you're talking about says, well, this is familiar because we know William Bennett, and he recommended the guillotine for uh drug dealers I, I actually didn't but this is this is what happens with the should i say the some of the enemies of the american people the, the fake the, the fake news the fake news people uh, i was on larry king show uh when i was drug czar director of drug policy guy called in and he said you know uh i'll tell you if i saw a drug dealer trying to sell drugs to my kid uh i would uh i would uh you know take him down right there i'd shoot him i'd kill him right there cut his head off 
Uh, all right, no, he said, I'd kill him right there. Guy then called in from Texas and said, I'm with that last guy. I would bring back the guillotine and, and cut off their heads. Larry King oh, clicked off the guy, hung up, said, that's a nut. I said, it's not a nut. I said, I, you know, that's not the way we administer punishment in this country with the guillotine. We don't use it. But um, he's got his moral headgear on, right? He understands how serious this is. You hook somebody on these things and you can destroy their life. You can destroy it right then and there. Uh, I said, so, you know, we want to do this within the process of the law. But um, I understand the guy's sentiment. Well, of course, the next day I was all over the papers. There were cartoons of me on the weekend with, you know, the guillotine. Bring back the guillotine. No, I was pulling it. I was pulling the rope, you know, (laughs) or letting the thing go. And uh, all this, and it was, you know, get rid of Bennett and get rid of Bennett. And and I remember Lee Atwater came to see me, and he said, you know, you ought to think about running for something. You're extremely (laughs) popular. This was at the height of the drug problem. And people were mad, you know. They wanted something to be done. Better to do something than not to do something. But uh, we'll see. You know, I, look, he should talk to all these guys whom, whom he's inclined to talk, who he's inclined to talk with. And um, that's fine with me. When you were talking about that story about the drug dealers, I'm reminded of the uh, sheriff in Florida who yes. filmed that video with the ski masks. Yes. And, and basically said, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. That's reminiscent of my old friend Ruben Greenberg from Charleston, South Carolina, who uh, got on TV and said the same thing. And I remember I called him up and I said, What's happening? He said, they're leaving the state of South Carolina. They're going elsewhere. He said, they're not my problem anymore, Bennett. They're your problem because uh, they're going elsewhere. I said, well, just if everybody did what you were doing, none of us would have as many problems. But tough rhetoric matters. I mean, sure you were talking about this, too. I think you talked about this on your panel out there about the, Trump's, the effect of Trump's rhetoric on immigration. Yeah, well, look at that. I mean, uh, arrests are up of criminal uh, aliens, undocumented uh, aliens, uh, illegal aliens. Uh, and the numbers crossing are way down, down something like 70%. Now, as our friend Mark Kerkorian reminded us, he's going to have to do more. He's going to have to follow up and take other steps in order to uh, keep these numbers down. But he has created and built a rhetorical wall already, which is making a huge difference. And uh, that is to his credit. That's a nice turn of phrase there. Oh, uh, that. yeah, that's all right. Rhetorical well, wall. Once that's in a good. while, keep listening to the podcast every week and you'll get one or two phrases over the course of a year, or maybe more. Were there any other moments uh, out here on the West Coast? You know, you were talking about, I think you said during your speech, the best thing he's done so far, and Brian said this as well, was skip the White House correspondence. I just loved it. My wife and I did not go to the White House correspondence dinner this year. We haven't gone in years. Certainly didn't go. And didn't you walk out one year? We walked out two years. Uh, Al Franken was the comedy, uh, quote, unquote. Uh, He was not in the Senate then, and he was so gross. So unbelievably vulgar, like Stephen Colbert in the last week. Uh, so bad that we just got up and walked. That was on C-SPAN. The C-SPAN cameras followed us out. And uh, got a lot of got mail on that. It is, a, it is a pretty stupid affair. I mean, it, it can be gross and vulgar. But then also they give awards to each other. They all love each other. And I remember one year with uh, Bush uh, Jr., George W., um, and uh, the, the announcement was, uh, and this goes to Reuters or whoever it was, to Tommy Jones of Reuters for his wonderful series, Why Bush Lies All the Time, where it had some title <laughs> like that. And the guy comes up and Bush shakes his hand. Oh my gosh. Come on, what indignities do you have to suffer 
at the hands of this. But this was so important, I think. And I'm glad Brian brought it up, too, because this shows that this guy does not defer to the press. He's not afraid of them. Uh, he may care what they write because he likes to comment on it, but he will not dance to their tune. And that is so welcome. Um, and, uh, you know, Reagan didn't either. Uh, you know, he used to say, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't read the critics. I pay attention to box office. It's box office, not the critics that matter. I think he was right about that. You bet. Um, yeah, I don't know if you saw this, uh, speaking of the crude humor, the comedian who's hosting, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, made a Nazi joke comparing Steve Bannon and it didn't get any of the press that Sean Spicer got when he happened to oh, make really? a Nazi. Yeah, really. I watched uh, a part of that routine. I just, I'm sorry. I didn't think it was funny. I just didn't think it was funny. Uh, I know funny. I can be funny myself. And uh, I know other people can be funny. But, I, you know, I, I just... Uh... And the juxtaposition, right? Isn't that the big point? Trump in Harrisburg. You look around the audience. I mean, these are... Those were Americans. Those are Americans. Were American people there. And they're just, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get that crowd from central casting you know i mean those were just pennsylvania people good people out on a saturday evening to listen to the president and there were these people at the white house course apparently hollywood didn't show yeah i will tell you one thing yeah i, I was in dc like a good you, inside the were you at the dinner I, I was not i was not uh but i was in dc like a good inside the beltway guy and there wasn't much going on in the town usually you know night that weekend it's yeah, just yeah, yeah, parties yeah, and yeah, events yeah, yeah, everywhere yeah, yeah. And we were downtown, and we were in Georgetown, and there Nothing. wasn't much going on. You were trying, looking for the Vanity Fair party. We were right? trying to sneak in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All, right. All right. All right. Well, maybe the Vanity Fair party next year. But, uh, Chris, thanks for joining me. Thanks for your good questions. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. This week, I'm delighted to feature another episode of my exclusive interview with Steve Wynn chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the new finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Steve has designed some of the best and most beautiful resorts in the world. When I first set foot in the Bellagio, I thought it was the most fabulous place I'd ever seen. And then came the Wynn and Encore, which are even more incredible. Yep, in this interview, I start by asking Steve how he goes about designing each resort and how he continues to improve and stay ahead of the competition. Bellagio was all about grandeur. When, and I asked myself, what trumps, no relation to the man, what trumps grandeur? Intimacy. Mm -hmm. Intimacy is bigger than grandeur. You can have grand moments, but really, when you go to a place, you want it to be personal. So we, we came at this project, the Win and Encore project, with a different sensibility. We wanted to make everything easy and comfortable and warm and classy and elegance, but we wanted it to be intimate. Well, making three, four, five thousand rooms hotel intimate, right there, it, it, there's the challenge. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're building a boutique with ninety rooms, but when you, how do you make a place intimate for a whole lot of folks? Yeah. Well, there's there's a problem that's man sized. That can keep you occupied. <laughs> I think you solved it. All right, I got to ask next then. Paradise Park. Tell our listeners what Paradise Park is, what the idea is. How's it coming? Well, we've had this this 130 acres in the back with 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 you know um, exclusive water rights 
for 16 or 17 years, and I've always dreamt of taking this 18-hole golf course and creating a village, a place that would take Las Vegas to another level. The opportunity exists. The challenge is delicious. But the choices that this piece of property offers are enormous. So you're, you're very, very important that you focus on exhausting all of the options and boiling it down to the, what appears to be the best of all possible solutions. So it's a terrific puzzle to, you know, with all kinds of positive options. And basically what we're going to do is create a 4,400 foot boardwalk around an enormous lagoon with white sand, what appears to be white sand beaches, water sports and activities. And this boardwalk, like Saint-Tropez or St. Bart's, will be ringed with hotel rooms, retail, food and beverage, conventioning and meeting space, and other fanciful entertainment experiences. And that's, that's, a, that's a general description of what I'm trying to do with my, my friends out here. And uh, this is the one place in the world where you could swing for the fences for that because we've got 43 million people a year coming to Las Vegas, over 800,000 people a week. And they're coming here whether it's for a convention or just a pure vacation, everything, the reason they come to Las Vegas is every trip is part entertainment and recreation and part business. They come here to live big, to have experiences they can't get at home. And I'm a guy that wants to give it to them. And I think that's just a dandy way to spend the day. You bet. Will there still be a golf course? No. Okay. There'll be golf courses elsewhere. Okay. <clears throat> what's the what's the timing on Paradise Park? Well, you have to reduce all of this fancy conversation and, and highfalutin talk to a set of plans, a budget, and a business plan that justifies the investment. And you do that with the board of directors of a public company when, as management, you think you're ready to make your case. And then the board can say yes or no. I, I would love to be able to get this before my board by mid-year and give them time to consider it, assuming we have our homework done, and get the green light for the project in the third quarter and maybe get started with part of it this year. And it could, how long a project is it? How long would it three. take? Three. It's a three-year project. At least, yeah. Uh, and we know about your project in Boston. That started on July 10th. It's a 34-month job. It's seven or eight months into it. It's developing. It's going to be a big deal in Boston. We are the largest private, the largest private investment in the in the history of the Commonwealth, and the second largest employer behind Massachusetts General Hospital. Yeah. Amazing. That's it is amazing. amazing. It, you know, my family's from Revere. Who would ever dreamt that we would be playing a role in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Uh, you and I have talked about this before. It yeah. is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still, as my father would be, trying to process the, the way life works and how things, the shape things take so unexpectedly. Tell me about something. Uh, my wife and I were here Super Bowl weekend. A lot of talk, a lot of chatter about Macau 
and uh, what's going on in Macau. And the, I know you, you, you know, you do a lot of business in Macau, but the things are changing there. Mm -hmm. The Chinese were coming here now rather than going to Macau. Is there truth to this? What what's going well, on? The Chinese have always gone everywhere. The the, okay. the high income, well to do Chinese businessmen that visit the United States with their families are the kind of folks that can go anywhere in the world. Just like I see. just like successful Americans or, or Canadians can go anywhere they want. Uh, I think that they've always come here for a change and for the tremendous choice that Las Vegas offers. The menu here is enormous. You can stay in a room for under $100 or you can stay in a room for $20,000. You can have a meal for $299 or $399 or get a meal for $399. What's wonderful about Las Vegas is you can jump from one end of that rainbow to the other in just a, a few blocks. Macau is rapidly getting to be, by design, exactly the same kind of choice all the new hotels that have been built there, ours included, offer enormous choices of retail shopping, more than Paris or London. Really? Oh, the Macau, every single retailer on earth, every designer has got multiple outlets. These hotels, thousands of thousands of brand new first class hotels with rooms with two sinks and separate water closets and separate showers and separate tubs and big screen television and touch screen temperature control and music and entertainment and television. Macau has millions of feet now being built, hundreds of thousands at a time of, of gorgeous convention and meeting space. And right next to Macau is a, another development on Henson Island, when I say right next, I mean a few hundred yards. Henson Island with amusement parks and a whole batch of new hotels there. That, that Pearl River Delta area that is between Hong Kong and Macau and that area of Henson Island and Macau is rapidly becoming one of the great destination centers on the face of the earth. Amazing. Yeah, it, it, and the fact that it's happened so fast. I mean... I was in Macau at the end of the 90s, and it was a place that bears no resemblance physically or in any respect in terms of economic activity and commerce to what's going on today. It's now one of the largest destination tourist place on the planet, like Orlando and New York and Las Vegas. But those places, Orlando, New York, and Las Vegas, have been there a long time. Although China is ageless, and Macau, you know, has been there for so, centuries. But what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is stunning. So the experiences of people in Wynn, Las Vegas, and Wynn, Macau, are converging. They'll, sim they'll be similar. Absolutely Because I had heard that, you know, on the weekend I talked about, uh, my wife or guests want to spend most of their time at shows uh, or shopping uh, and, uh, you know, dining. Uh, and I had heard in Macau, it's, it's about gambling, it's about gaming, it's about playing. Is, is this wrong? I mean, I've, I've never been. What's going on in, in Macau and the Las Vegas are getting more and more similar. Mm-hmm. In the early days of Las Vegas, we didn't have the enormous non-casino expenditures that we have now because the, the restaurants and the stores hadn't been built yet. Okay. Macau okay. is the same thing. I see. 
but uh, the gambling level, the gaming activity in China is is enormous. Uh, there's definitely, if you're interested, Bill, why they say Chinese people like to gamble more than American than anybody else, Europeans less, Americans somewhere in the middle. It is a fact that when a population has been deprived of luxury, of all the mm -hmm. fancy things in life, mm -hmm. once that population becomes aware of the good life, and because of digital world we live in and the communications explosion, everybody everywhere knows about everything everywhere else. Yeah. So, yeah. we know that first generation money, when a family comes into uh, higher income levels, the first thing they do is they want to get the things they've always heard about. Okay. I mean, my father's mother's age was a Cadillac or a mink coat right. or a diamond ring. Right. First generation people are, are very voracious in their appetite for the good life because they've never had it before. They're dying to get what they've read about. And it's novel and it's exciting. And incidentally, when people are first generation wealth, they remember they are the first generation, which means they've made the money. So they think they can make more. Yeah. And they think they should be able to dispose of their money any way they see fit. It's their money. I they see. made it. So I if they see. want to gamble or buy too many pairs of shoes or buy a mink coat or something like that, that's or gamble, that's part of the good life. I see. So, they, so first generation wealth tends to be very consumer spending uh, heavy. Now, second and third generations that have been used to the good life aren't quite as excited about the latest toy. Oh, they, their, their taste gets more sophisticated. They, they, they don't want a Cadillac, they want a painting or something, or they mm -hmm. want to go to the opera or to mm -hmm. see the ballet mm -hmm. or go to the theater. They have the time and the education to have been exposed to those kinds of things, and they move to the next level. Well, let's look at China. All the money in China is only 30 years old. Yeah, okay. It's all new wealth. There's nothing genetically in the DNA of Chinese people that makes them predisposed to play Baccarat or, or, or something more than somebody from Argentina or Switzerland. However, if you track the history of those families... I see. And when they first got to have a choice in life, then you'll see heavily, heavily, much more heavy depend, uh, proclivity to go to consumer spending for things like fancy, fancy things. So as the generations progress, the convergence yes. becomes clear. Yes, that's why Europeans, which you know, the, the money in Europe is older. Yeah, sure. Older much families, older. Uh, they don't gamble much. In, yeah. uh, local people don't gamble much in the casinos of London. Yeah, yeah. Arabs do. Mid-Eastern people do, Russians do, Chinese do. Okay. What do those three disparate groups culturally have in common? New money, first-generation wealth. That's it. That's fascinating stuff, Steve, but we have to leave it there for today. Thanks, as always. Okay, folks, this has been The Bill Bennett Show. I will talk to you again next week. <laughs>